You're listening to the Modern Web Podcast. For more podcasts, videos, and events, find us online at modern-web.org or follow us on Twitter at modern.web. That's M-O-D-E-R-N-D-O-T-W-E-B. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Modern Web Podcast. My name is Rob Osell. I'm a developer at this.labs, and I'm going to be your host today. I'm joined today by my co-host, Jake Dome, who's a developer at GoodWork. Um, and today we're going to be talking about compilers. Uh, joining us to discuss this is uh, Minko Getchev, who's a, 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 um, on the Angular team at Google. We also have Radislav Kirov, who is on the TypeScript language support team at Google. And we have uh, Christopher Baxter, who is a self-styled creator of web pages and performance expert uh, trying to make the internet at least 1% faster each year. So that's his uh, formal title. Um, so with that, why don't we get started? And Jake, why don't you uh, get us started with the first question? Sure thing. So before we jump into talking about all the different compilers and what they do, let's uh, just practice it with what a compiler is. So I'll throw that out there. And um, Minko, do you want to jump on that question? Yeah, sure. So basically, the compiler transforms one language to another, one programming language to another. In the like most, that's the most simple definition that we can provide. The target language it can be on different level. It can be very low level language such as assembly, or it can be a higher language. For example, we have a lot of compilers which uh, produce JavaScript. Okay, that's pretty much and, it. And how like. So I think other people, like I know I've heard terms like transpilers, people have heard like interpreters. Some people thought that compilers were only about doing like C++ or you know, languages like that. So how should web developers and JavaScript developers in particular understand the differences between compilers, interpreters, transpilers, or is there not as much difference as people think? Oh, there are quite a few differences. Well, specifically compiler and transpiler, I'm, I'm often using using them uh, using transpilers uh, when I'm referring to a compiler which produces target language where the target language is from higher level, for example, JavaScript. Although I'm not uh, uh, confident about the formal definition if there is one, usually uh, from the publication that I have read, usually they're referring to everything as a compiler and the interpreter is something else. Uh, it is related to, it uses some of the faces from the compiler, but in general, it doesn't produce any source code. It directly interprets the an abstract representation of the program. Yeah, I think the work of uh, like all these terms, they kind of started in computer science and as we they spread their usage, they lose their very formal strict meaning. So at this point, uh, you know, we have a more colloquial usage and I think, yeah, uh, compiler and transpiler in our space, in the web space, I think could be almost interchangeable. And the, the other thing that there is not a compiler or a transpiler is the interpreter, is the thing that actually executes the program. So as long as it doesn't execute the program and consumes it, we might as well call it a compiler. Yeah, in fact, I would just stop using the word transpiler entirely. Uh, at this <laughs> point, most of its unique meaning. Um, uh, in fact, I just refer to even something like Babel as just a compiler. Um, it just makes things easier. One last term to try to figure out what it means in, the, in a very complicated space. I think that's what Henry Zhu, the maintainer of Babel, said too at one point. He's like, okay, it might technically be a transpiler, but let's just unify the language and call it a compiler. Great. So I feel like there has been a lot of movement in, or at least a lot of uh, heat in the compiler space 
in web development? Like a, a lot of different tools or approaches have popped up. Is there any reason why um, that's happening now? Like what, why are compilers and tools like these uh, like being so big right now? Like why are they growing and, and multiplying? I think it's very fun to create a compiler, and that's one of the reasons why everyone is creating. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's also uh, well. I think everything started around. Well, everything started uh, in '99-'5 when JavaScript was developed for ten days, and uh, this was already this already required us to develop something, um, a, a language on top of JavaScript, a language which compiles to JavaScript that solves a lot of the issues which were inherited from the short design, right? So, for example, uh, CoffeeScript, that's why it appeared. It has very simple uh, syntax, very friendly syntax, and it introduces us, it introduces some concepts which were back then when CoffeeScript was trending. It was we had ECMAScript version three, so we don't have class syntax, we don't have arrow functions and things like that. And uh, there were a lot of issues around JavaScript. Uh, for example, whether we should use triple equal or double equal, things like that. So CoffeeScript had, was opinionated about these things. And uh, it started the trend with with everyone building their own compiler. <laughs> and since you building a compiler is a very fun activity, we have right now maybe hundreds of languages which compile specifically to JavaScript. And yeah, I'm not aware of a language which does not compile to JavaScript yeah. <laughs> at this point. Uh, whether that's actually used by anybody in production, a lot of them I think are more of a play, you know, theoretical. Yeah. Awesome. So besides the fun aspect, which um, I mean, I know people that have worked on these kind of things, and uh, I think we'll talk about this later. But I know people that have worked on Babel plugins that have gotten really into these concepts when they've been introducing, investigating that. But what are the actual like technical challenges that are trying to be solved by some of these? I mean, I think Babel um, is one of the ones that people are most familiar with because it kind of lets them use features that maybe aren't generally supported. Um, but like, there's other ones, maybe like Svelte or like TypeScript, that are kind of have different approaches. So, like, are the, what are the technical things that we're trying to accomplish in this space with some of these different compilers? I think it all it all boils down to the, this gap where uh, the web is the biggest platform, the most ubiquitous platform. That's where all the users are, and then here are the developers, and they have their own. The developers want to write a language that may be different than what the platform gives, and to bridge this gap, you put a compiler in the middle, and the gap disappears, right? Because I can write in language A, output language B, that's what's consumed by the web platform. And now A and B could be anywhere from JavaScript of different versions or very fancy like Haskell or Scala to JavaScript. But the platform is JavaScript. Like That's the one thing that's in everybody's browser. So, so I would actually take it a little bit of a different angle. I think that our applications have just become far more ambitious on the web. Uh, and as a result of that, we, we needed to introduce things like compilers. The first compiler I used um, in a commercial sense was Dean Edwards Packer. Um, and the, the, the benefit there was that as I was able to deliver a lot more functionality without a huge impact to user experience. And so what I've seen in the web industry is this kind of trend towards more complex, powerful applications. And these, these applications tend to require more uh, compilation technologies. Um. What uh, I'm curious, what specifically um, the compiler provided on top of uh, what the web platform currently does provide for you? I can see some other uh, some other features that the compiler compilers bring to the web platform. For example, the Angular compiler and the Svelte, for example, they're taking declarative templates and compiling them to more efficient representation, which invokes direct 
invocation of functions that are going to render the view in the most efficient way. Uh, that's from a different angle. So of course we we have our own pre preferences. As Rado said, some some of us prefer to write with a very strict language, like not not strict but like functional language, uh, with very very formal type system like uh, PureScript, let's say, and others prefer. Uh, so this is one of the motivations, I guess. The, the second one is to 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 produce more efficient source code from very um, declarative and uh, user-friendly syntax, let's say. For example, Angular templates or Svelte. Or Ember as well, Glimmer there is. That's yeah. another topic actually which we can discuss. And then another motivation as uh, Rado mentioned is uh, compiling back to ES5 or a version of JavaScript that's supported in older browsers. So there's kind of yeah. a bunch of different reasons you might want a compiler in between you and the code you write and the code you ship, which is why so many people are using one as opposed to five, 10 years ago when you know you might minify it, but pretty much the code you write, it's the code you're gonna put on your site. That doesn't happen very often anymore. Yeah, life was much simpler. For better or for worse. <laughs> I think like, historically, really, the, the big explosion happened with ES6, right? Because then it felt, even people who were a little bit on the fence about adding tooling, they were like, well, it's an intermediate state, maybe. You know, maybe at some point ES5 will become ES6 and we won't need this tool. But of course, though, I, I feel that was a little bit of a, uh, it didn't pan out like that because now we have ES7 and we have, there's always the thing the spec keeps growing and the, I think we're, we're never getting the compilers out of our tool chains. Yeah, Bubble was, was even called five to six initially, right? Yeah, right. So that's an interesting bridge because I wasn't aware of this until before we started the podcast. But um, you know, we introduced the concept of like a Labab style compiler, so something that's almost kind of working in the opposite direction. So Chris, did you kind of want to introduce that concept and kind of why such a thing would actually be useful? Yeah, so it's really interesting. Um, the V8 team and other JavaScript teams, uh, teams working on JavaScript interpreters, have spent a lot of energy in, 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 on in making sure that more modern, newer syntax runs efficiently within the browser or within a browser context. Uh, a script type module can avoid a whole lot of overhead that, of compatibility that a regular script tag um, uh, must, must make sure to execute correctly. Um, and as a result, it's, uh, there's a whole series of compilers now that are starting to emerge that do Labob-style transforms. So instead of going from ES2017 down to ES5, it's take your current source and move it up. Um, a good example of this is you have a function that returns a promise. That function might actually be better represented as an async function, given the right conditions. Sorry, um, are you saying Lebab like bubbles backwards? Is that exactly? There's actually okay. I wasn't sure. <laughs> okay, that's clever. <laughs> I, just, no, I will not take credit for the name. I think it's a fantastic name. Uh, but the, this style of transformation is the is kind of what we're going to see a lot more in compilers very soon, where you're able to use whole program analysis to figure out. Uh, you've got a, an array that you run multiple for eaches over instead of running them all in one specific method. Is that is that an optimization that makes sense um, given this? And and those are the kind of things that you see in other compilers. So this is the kind of optimizations that you see in GCC with 03 or 05. Um, and, and these kind of optimizations make programs more efficient without changing this, the uh, root source code. Um, you combine that with module, no module, 
um, or uh, other approaches that will allow for uh, differential bundling and serving, um, you, you start to get a way to deliver the more modern code that's really efficient, even on devices that may be low powered, but with a newer JS engine. Um, and you still get to support compatibility wise, those older user agents that may be on really powerful hardware still, but just don't have the capability to run that newer syntax. So we started out uh, converting our new code to old code. And now we're making sure that the code we write that uses slightly older syntax is the newest and fastest. It can be kind of a fun thing to watch the compilers kind of flip on there and start doing both even. I have a question about the transformation. Does it make sense to put it all the way back to the source or is this just a transformation for the bundle? Because uh, the modernization, like there's a, there's also need for, I want to run this, but not to emit a bundle, but to modify my sources to be modern and then check the, check it into the report and be done with that. Um, yeah, like a, a code mod for your original root source uh, is another compiler, right? Yeah. I, I think it depends on the scenario uh, of what you're trying to achieve. Um, so in some places, the code is more expressive to the authors in the original source format, but can be more optimally delivered um, through a, a compiler step. That makes sense in that case. Uh, there's other times where changing something from an older syntax to newer syntax just makes sense. Um, and those code mods are a perfect way to, to execute that, especially on something like a major revision of your framework. That is a great way to, to gain adherence and compliance across large swaths of code. And the amazing part is the compiler technology you need to build all of this is pretty much the same. Uh, it just depends what you do with it. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, I, I like this concept of, and I hadn't thought about it in this way, but like of compilers, like smart people making compilers um, that help everybody do something a little bit better. So it's like almost like a developer experience thing in some level, right? Like we're talking about, you know, you might not know exactly the right way to represent your code, but this helps you. Or you may not, um, you know, you may fall into some issues with typing. So you can, you know, use TypeScript or something like it and have it compile into, you know, a different format that kind of takes those away so it doesn't have a runtime effect. Is is that why compiler use is growing? And why is that part of what's making this so good? Is that it's kind of helping everybody be more productive or making the whole web faster without people necessarily having to know why things are getting faster? Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, yeah, we're we're getting more productive and the web is getting faster. That that's a good point. And there could be also different different uh, yeah that's another thing. There could be different um, periods when you're performing the actual compilation. It can be either ahead of time so you can you can do the compilation um, before you ship your application to the user, or it can, it can be um, just-in-time compilation as well. So, uh, for example, some of, uh, for example, you may want eventually to ship the source code to the user in the form that you have written it. But uh, as part of the execution, you may want to compile um, some of some pieces of it just in the meantime while the, while the the rest of the source code is being executed. For example, that's something that we used to do in Angular. Uh, with the templates, uh, but yeah, uh, I completely agree with your point. I think like most powerful tools, it depends on how something's being used. So uh, unfortunately, there's been a lot of uh, downsides of compiler usage within uh, web applications as well. I can't tell you how many 
bundles I look at that have class transformations um, that are uh, not loose enough and as a result add a lot of boilerplate or how many copies of a uh, object assigned polyfill um, uh, exist in a bundle so that way the compiler can assume that it exists um, uh, in a specific context. Um, so there are downsides as well to compilers and their impact on overall web performance. But in the grand scheme of things, I think compilers are really required to get us to that, uh, the set of functionality and requirements that we have about what we want the web to be, um, but allow us to do that in a way that doesn't impact performance in the long run. Um, about progressive transpilation, about uh, moving towards the newer syntax of, and, and still supporting older users, but, but maybe they have a slightly slower experience. Great. And, you know, one of the things that I was thinking about is there are a lot of different types of compilers. Like I know, like with the typing systems, as one example, there was a lot of conversation about whether to use TypeScript or alternatives recently. And I wondered if this mirrored at all some of the conversations that happened around frameworks. I mean, they still happen, but were really prevalent a few years ago where people were saying, don't use that, it's slow, or you know, there was a, people would joke that there was a new framework every day in JavaScript and things like that. Like, how should people that are really fascinated by what these, these compilers can do for them, but are worried about putting something in their system that might be doing something either they don't understand, or maybe it's not going to last for a long time. Like, how should people um, experiment with, incorporate, and evaluate these different tools on their projects? So I think they should. The one nice thing about all this tooling uh, for people that are older like me, all of them, all of them are open source right now, right? So uh, don't treat them as black boxes. They are a little bit different than the programs you like, right? But at the end, they're programs, right? They take some strings and output some other strings. Uh, so always measure, you know, like open that bundle, take a look. If you, you know, see a lot of object assigned, file a bug, you know another tool might come and dedupe it, you know, like, uh, sorry to say that the, the, the answer to too much compilers might be add more compilers, but uh, again, don't treat them as black boxes. Uh, they're, they, they seem mystical kind of uh, because there's a log, log accumulation of, you know, compiler skills existed since we've been programming. Um, so it feels uh, daunting, but uh, it's actually not, at the end of the day, it's just another program. You can debug it, you can put print statements in it, um, so uh, demystifying, I think, all this goes a long way. And then now we can measure. Now you can start to understand, and you know, in, maybe interact with the developers of all this tooling because um, they're all on GitHub. And you know, I think that's one one step. Yeah, I, th I think the astexplorer.net is a really good entry uh, into uh, working on compilers. Um, it's I use it every day. It's just in and see what the abstract, abstract syntax tree is and write a small transformation and see it change before your eyes. That's really powerful. And it's uh, it's so fast, the turnaround time, um, that it, it, it kind of is like a gateway drug in a sense. Like you really start to play with it. You want to do more and more and more. And it's quite fun. Yeah. So does someone want to, because uh, that sounds really interesting, does someone want to talk about what an AST is, why it's created, and uh, you know which compilers use it. Do all compilers use it? Or I know Babel uses it, um, but if someone wants to talk about that, I'd love to learn more. 
Yeah, it, uh, so it, it might be a little bit complicated for a user who is new to all of this to just quickly look at the ST Explorer and completely, well, it, it's like it provides only limited information. It provides some structural representation of the program in the way that in the of the source code. So in general, the source code first is going to go of the program is going to, it is just a string in general. We're just writing strings all day long. That's, that's what we do. And after that, the source code goes through a process of lexical analysis. So basically each string is being, basically the program uh, from this list, from this string, we're getting a list of substrings. For example, we have a new statement, we have the if keyword, and we have an open parenthesis and so on and so forth. Uh, and as next step, the compiler, the front end of the compiler is going to produce this tree, uh, abstract syntax tree. This is what AST stands for. So this is going to be produced by taking this list of tokens from the lexical analysis and uh, in also getting the grammar of the language, which is just a bunch of rules how we can construct our programs. And from there, we are just generating this abstract syntax tree that we can explore in the AST Explorer. Um, and there are different plugins with different, there are different uh, compilers with different plugin models. For example, um, I haven't used uh, the, the, I haven't written Babel plugin, I guess, but uh, from what I, um, from what I, the source plugins that I have read, you're just receiving the AST, you can perform whatever transformations you want to, and you're passing it to the next plugin in the chain. So you can do cool things this way. One one thing to mention is <clears throat> might be a surprise to uh, people who are new to this. Uh, we write one language, but there are many different ASTs, right? Because AST is kind of the internal data representation of the compiler. And if you go to uh, AST Explorer, there's a big dropdown with uh, ten different options. And uh, at first, that feels like why it's the same language. But uh, actually, when you come get into compiler performance, different compilers have kind of different goals what they want to do, and Ultimately, if you want to optimize those uh, the transformations you do, you have to lay out your data structure in a way that's most efficient for the thing you want to do. And that's why I think the different uh, compilers have different ASTs. Uh, if you squint, they all represent the same program, but uh, they might have different names of nodes and so on. And um, vaguely, they all mirror the ECMAScript spec, right? So you know, if we have notion of class, that class is represented in the ST as some kind of node. But uh, there are many variations you can do even beyond that. And is it usually always a one-step process, or like like take the example of TypeScript, you know, because it's a it's a superset of JavaScript. So is there like a stage where it's compiling away the TypeScript internals, and then maybe it's allowing people to do additional transformations, or is that not the right way of thinking about it? Like, is there mm -hmm. anything different? I mean, like, because Babel, I understand, is turning one version of JavaScript into another, so that's almost like same to same. But when you go from something either greatly different or from a superset down, does that change at all the process uh, by which this happens? So I, I can speak about TypeScript because uh, that's what I deal with <laughs> day day to day. Uh, so it's it's basically the same. Like, the, if you squint, the, it's the same pipeline. You right, you you take some strings in, you transform it to a big data structure, then you do some transformations on this data structure. The extra part is the types, right? So types are not specced by the ECMAScript. Uh, so they are, after the colon, something comes. That thing needs its own parser. And it's actually quite complicated. Um, it's not just string or number. It could be some fancy stuff like map types or you know, uh, TypeScript has a very rich type system. Uh, and now there's extra step that TypeScript does, which is, OK, I, par I understood these types, but I need to 
check them, right? So there's this extra step that just goes through this and its only job is to give you, to reject your code. <laughs> and if it succeeds, it proceeds with the regular transformations that Bubble does. And that's why I think recently there's been work to uh, make Bubble not check the types of TypeScript, but understand them enough to strip them out and do its transformations. So it can kind of consume TypeScript in a in the most naive way, which is consume TypeScript, but don't check, just transform. So TypeScript is just a checker plus a transformer, and then it fits into the general framework. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, while we're kind of talking about these internals, we talked about the AST. Are there any other sort of, for people that might sort of, this is tickled their fancy. So they know the AST Explorer now. Are there any other sort of big players in this process of compilation at that super high level that maybe would be useful to kind of introduce so that when they're reading stuff that it makes it makes more sense to them or that kind of explains more of the pipeline of what's sort of happening when something's getting transformed? Yeah, rather already mentioned type checking. That's that's a very, very, that's, in, well, you, you don't have this in all compilers, of course. Uh, and some compilers are, they don't have, like you have uh, either runtime type checking or uh, compile time type checking, or you just run the program and hope it works, and you get some like runtime errors. Uh, there is also well, once you perform go through all these steps, lexical analysis, syntax analysis, you get the EST, you do the type checking in type in terms of TypeScript. You also emit some source code, or you can either evaluate the EST. That's that's where the difference between trans between a interpreter and a, and a compiler comes. How you're going to, what you're going to do with this AST. Are you going to generate some source code out of it? Or are you going to just uh, interpret it? Or if, if you want to do something in the middle, you can even analyze this AST and produce some additional warnings, which can be, which is basically a linter. The linter is going to go through this AST, uh, provide some analysis on top of it, and give you suggestions on how you should use the language the right way according to some some predefined principles that's it so in terms of other popular compilers that people are probably are using or or have used and don't realize it i mean webpack is a compiler um in many ways shapes and forms uh so flow is another popular typed variant of javascript um that, that many people use uh, and there's also things that will compile other types of languages in the web development ecosystem, like CSS compilers. Um, uh, it, there's plenty of other players in this space. It's really, really large. Um, it's not a very small group of people working on it um, in the grand scheme of things. Uh, if we're listing, uh, I'll have to add the one I have to interact with daily, uh, which is the Clojure compiler. Uh, Clojure with an S. It's a Google JavaScript to JavaScript compiler. Uh, very similar kind of to TypeScript, and that's a big part of my job is uh, creating the tools that allow us to interact between those two tools. Uh, the one uh, thing that Clojure is kind of from the get-go optimized for is uh, creating a very small bundle. That's something that uh, TypeScript doesn't do. So. Um, and T-Sickle. Optimizing compiler. T-Sickle is amazing. Comes from the Angular team. Uh, <laughs> it, it definitely needs to be mentioned. It helps you use TypeScript code with Clojure Compiler much easier. Oh, one comment about Webpack. I'll prefer to put it into a slightly different category, although in the end it compiles a bunch of assets and produces some efficient output. Uh, it is either, a, well, it's currently growing into a build system mo mostly, which 
a slightly bigger scope uh, because, uh, yeah, just to comment on the side, whether it's a bundler or a compiler or build system. Uh, well, yeah, Webpack does it all, but in a classical, like the, the build system is something that orchestrates the compiler, tells the compiler you run when, uh, yeah. and that's actually a non-trivial problem to know a single file change on a disk, what should run, just what should run, right? And what is usually a compiler. So usually the build system calls into the compilers. The Webpack kind of does everything in process, so it's you easily separate all the pieces, but yeah. I think three compilers to really, if you want to look at some of the more modern compilers in the web space, I think the Angular compiler that works on uh, the new template syntax with Ivy is fantastic. It's a really good resource. The work being done by Rich Harris on Svelte, um, uh, it, it's a, almost now a custom language that's being written within Svelte templates in Svelte version three. Um, and the work that the LinkedIn folks are doing on Glimmer uh, is also pretty interesting and very unique. Um, uh, it avoids a lot of the JavaScript overhead. Yeah, Glimmer is fantastic. So it's it's a compiler which compiles your templates to uh, to bytecode, um, and so it doesn't compile the templates to something which is executable by the browser the way that the Angular compiler, NGTSC, or the Asphalt compiler does it. They're compiling something to just a blob, which after that, which is just like a combination of instructions. That after that, an interpreter goes comes in and starts interpreting this blob, this like sequence of instructions. So they, they're shipping a virtual machine as well. Um, and the reasoning behind this is that if you compile your templates to JavaScript, this means that they need to be parsed. Then, so the JavaScript virtual machine needs to go through lexical analysis and syntax analysis. And because the grammar of JavaScript is very complicated, this is a slow process. So that's why they prefer to ship just one sequence of instructions, which is going to be with their custom parser, which is going to be much faster, which is going to parse the sequence of instructions much faster compared to the way that uh, the JavaScript virtual machine is going to parse a bunch of JavaScript. That's kind of very meta. I, I like the, their idea. I don't, uh, and it seems that it's, work, it's working well in LinkedIn. Awesome. You know, I, I know that um, I don't believe anybody here is an expert or is working on this specifically, but uh, one of the things I think we'd be remiss to at, to at least just mention, even if none of us can talk about it in great depth, is all of the work that's happening with the WebAssembly piece. And I don't know if anybody here is familiar enough with it that they can at least explain any similarities or differences with some of the compilers that we've already talked about, just because I know that's probably a term that a lot of people at least have heard, and, they're, and they might be curious how that fits into this compiler space. Does anybody know it enough to, to explain uh, any of the differences? So it's, uh, it's, it's somewhat similar to what Ming mentioned about. Basically, going back to the definition of compiler, it takes source language to output. We now have a new output, which is WebAssembly, right? So that's, uh, that's a new thing that is, uh, it also initially said JavaScript is ubiquitous, so most of these compilers output JavaScript because that's what runs in the browsers. Well, now we have a second thing uh, that is very, very different from JavaScript. In fact, couldn't be any more different. <laughs> it's assembly. It's like a very low level, you know, JavaScript is very kind of high level, uh, you know, it doesn't deal with memory allocation. You just say, let X and, you know, memory appears. Uh, and it disappears whenever, like, so WebAssembly has to deal with, it's like closer to uh, how your CPU works. So you have to deal with concerns that are very different than the concerns of JavaScript. So it's a new output. And now there's a little bit of a kind of a gold rush to take all the, the inputs are very, very, 
various, right? The inputs are thousands. The outputs used to be just JavaScript. Now we have JavaScript and uh, WebAssembly. So there's a, I think it was like a gold rush to get any language to output WebAssembly. And some, you know, some languages are better suited to output WebAssembly and some are less. And ironically, I think JavaScript's not very well suited to output WebAssembly because it's very high level language. And something like Rust, for example, that is a, you know, systems programming language that doesn't have garbage collection is better suited to output WebAssembly. And there's, I haven't, uh, I've only seen demos with this. I haven't experimented with it myself, but, uh, it appears to be working and they have a WebAssembly output. I think a nice try WebAssembly is something like assembly script. Uh, it's very simple and familiar to people who write TypeScript. It's not a highly variant language. It's not highly variant from the TypeScript language itself. Um, uh, and it gets you a lot of the benefits of uh, uh, WASM compilation. Great. Um, so another topic that was brought up uh, somewhat recently, and I, I think it's been a conversation for a while, and probably in the compiler space, a, a well-known problem, but there was a lot of talk about, um, with the web, like people having the ability to like view source, right? And so I, I guess just that concept of whenever you have, sidestepping that conversation, but just this idea that compilers output something which is optimized in some way, right? Or just different than what, what went into it. And so some people might wonder like, both to ver validate what the, what the compiler actually did, um, but also to you know maybe understand what was there before the compiler had it. There's these conversations about being able to sort of reverse engineer the process or have some mappings that go back to the original source. Um, can you guys kind of introduce what that kind of concept is and um, kind of how some of the compilers might approach that? Yeah, um, Lucio did that a couple of years ago, like five, ten years. I don't know, five, ten years ago with the source maps specifically for JavaScript. It was a collaboration with the Google Closure compiler. Folks. Yes. Um, for like all the optimizing compilers. Uh, yeah, well, basically, together with the generation of the target program, the compiler is also generating a bunch of metadata, which allows you to map the produced outputs to the original input of the program. So basically, you can run your compiled output in the browser, but debug what you have written originally because this metadata together with Chrome DevTools can produce your original program. That's pretty much what source maps are. So I think there's one step that, that some folks have been uh, struggling with on the, on the web recently. So uh, a good example is the Twitter Lite application, uh, which uses something kind of similar to CSS modules, but it's, uh, it's baked into the React Native web framework. Um, and it, has its own custom set of syntax for class names. Um, those names change per build, and they're based on uh, a set of heuristics that you can't really know ahead of time unless you're working within that system. Um, and as a result, it's hard to just scrape their content, for instance, or to uh, modify the, the look and feel just with CSS alone. Um, you have to be more deeply ingrained in their system to modify the, the look and feel of the application. Um, I really think there's a there's a hard tipping point between what is an application and what is a website, um, and something that is uh, more just uh, read only or has minimal interactions. I, I would love to make sure that people who are developing those that are using compilers are also producing output that is consumable by others, um, even if it's not the default output. So you you enter you go to index.html and you get something that is compiled but there's a way to opt in to seeing the uncompiled version. 
um, for instance, for those, those kinds of sites. Um, this is also really beneficial for things like cataloging uh, our content. It's really important as a society that we have a library of the things that we've built. So we learn not to repeat our mistakes. If we don't make that source uh, indexable or understandable um, by humans, it's hard for us to go back and look at those things retroactively. So while source maps get us part of the way, I think there are additional things that we as an industry need to figure out how to do better on. Uh, how do we maintain the kind of the ethos of, I can just open my, uh, the app that I was using and make changes and actually understand what's going on uh, without having to, to know the entire build process. Is that, is that a worthy goal still, or is there a different way of expressing that, that, uh, that kind of demand? Um, I think there's more that we need to do is really what I'm coming down to. And I, I think as a result of not having this today, you're seeing frustration from people who want to access the web in a slightly different way. There was discussion about this recently on Twitter, actually, with DHH from uh, Rails, who was uh, feeling very nostalgic that he no longer can look at the source code and figure out how the application works. There, I think there is a very interesting, um, well, we should, uh, yeah, so there are some kind of orthogonal goals here because in order to uh, ship the application in its original form, we need to also provide some metadata in order to be able to transform it to how it is was how it looked before all these different transformations, such as like source code minification and compilation and so on and so forth. So it's, uh, yeah, very interesting competing goals there that uh, it's, it's hard to figure out where exactly the balance is. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, right? Because I mean, most of the time when you're talking about compilers, or at least traditional compilers, you're thinking about taking something that you wrote uh, with these, you know, with our language glyphs, right? And turning it into assembly that a, that a computer, that a CPU is supposed to understand. So this is one of those weird cases where we are simultaneously compiling something that both a machine and a human potentially could read. Um, I, I think the conversation is definitely interesting as to, um, you know, that, that that's an interesting concern. Yeah, I think the access point that um, uh, Christopher mentioned is very important. It's just the question is, do you access it kind of in situ, like in right as you're executing, do you want to access it or you access it through some indirection? Because again, the, the primary goal is of the page is to load. Like most people are not going to do that and then some people will. And can we get the performance we need for everybody uh, somehow uh, work well with the uh, access that we would like to give to some? And can can this be done in a in an unobtrusive way? Right? Can we have it both ways? Which it's hard, but it would be nice too. And in some cases, that's actually not what we want. Is uh, when we ship the application, we want some fields, for example, to be renamed. We don't want to expose their original names to the end user. They are busy and they're like actual. So I know Google, uh, like lots of products are experimented with. And it's very, there's a whole industry that likes, especially on Android, to uh, reverse engineer uh, binaries and try to figure out new product launches and their names. And there's another industry that tries to hide them on the other side. <laughs> and at some point, it feels uh, lots of wasted cycles. <laughs> um, so it's it's a it's a big topic to how to balance uh, those two desires great i mean I, I hope this doesn't introduce a topic that's too large but this just made me think you know when we're talking about being able to trace back what a compiler actually did what what its effects were so that we can understand it and whether it's working efficiently 
you know, I, I feel like I've heard instances where machine learning has started to be introduced in the concept of compilers to sort of intelligently or um, uh, to, to learn how to, to um, you know, new ways to combine the code. Um, you know, it, does that introduce any complexities in this topic where, you know, it has to output maybe the data that it used to make its decision in addition to the source maps or something uh, in order to kind of help with that process? I, yeah, that's a, it's a great topic because machine learning is like, obviously in all the other fields is very hot and very widely used at this point. Uh, there are lots of papers and uh, academic research being done on like using uh, machine learning for uh, on top of compiler technology. Like, let's say here's AST, uh, can, you know, simple things like, let's say, uh, can you say this AST is similar to this other AST using machine learning model and so on. Uh, in practice, though, I have not seen any of that be used in the industry in a serious way, right? So I think it's early days uh, compared to the kind of recommendation system pro problems that are, you know, uh, machine learning is, or, or like uh, image recognition, things that machine learning is just dominating. I have not seen uh, in the compiler technology uh, any serious use of machine learning yet, but yeah, time will tell. Yeah, for compile time optimization, I have seen some experiments but yeah, haven't used anything in practice. Yeah, same here. I, I think there is an opportunity for something that's a bit more probabilistic. So it's able to say, I'm gonna try four or five different variants on this different uh, import source and see what the most optimal output is given these conditions and learn over time how to uh, write an optimizing compiler based off of all of the code you've ever fed me. But it sounds really cool and I just, don't think it's real. <laughs> it's like um, it's it's almost like the curse of the AST is so structured. Machine learning is really shining in like image recognition, where there's just you know and you know there could be a house behind this car. You know, like the, it's so structured. Uh, we invent languages because this is invented by us, right? Ultimately, it's not the real world. So the AST has so much structure that uh, the machine learning doesn't shine as much because it's very good at figuring out the structure. But we know the structure already. Uh, so that's why I think it's it's a harder problem and it's a still kind of research topic. But I'm, I'm sure something will come out in the next five, 10 years. Well, awesome. Thank you, everybody. Um, that'll do it for today. Um, I want to thank our guests, uh, Minko, who you can find on Twitter at uh, M-G-E-C-H-E-V. Um, I also like to thank Rado. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, you can find him on Twitter at Rado Kirov. That's R-A-D-O-K-I-R-O-V. And Chris, you can find on Twitter at Christopher Baxter. So that's K-R-I-S-T-O-F-E-R-B-A-X-T-E-R. -E -E um, I'd also like to thank my co-host Jake, who you can find on Twitter at Jake Dome. That's J-A-K-E-D-O-H-M. Um, my name is Rob O'Sell, and you can find me on Twitter at Rob O'Sell. So it's R-O-B-O-C-E-L-L. -L. To all of you, thanks for listening to the Modern Web Podcast. Um, you can find us online at moderndotweb.com or on Twitter at modern.web. So that's M-O-D-E-R-N-D-O-T-W-E-B. Right. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for being here. Thank you. This podcast is sponsored by NativeScript. Want to use your web skills to build iOS and Android apps? Try NativeScript. NativeScript is an open source framework for building native mobile apps using technologies you already know, like JavaScript, Angular, or Vue. Learn more at nativescript.org slash modern web.